Looking for new threads? Well, we've got you covered at the Music Is Live podcast official merch store over at tpublic.com. Whether it's t-shirts, baseball tees, hoodies, coffee mugs, travel mugs, phone cases, or onesies for your infant rockers and metalheads, you can find everything you're looking for over at the Music Is Live podcast merch store at tpublic. Go to my link tree at l-i-n-k-a-t-r dot e-e forward slash Music Is Live podcast and get your merch today. Buy my stuff and thanks for your support. TerraNut is proud to offer you a natural nut bar chock full of healthy fats, minerals, and protein that meet your demands. Go to their website, www.terranut.com. You can order from them directly, and they will ship it to you. Use my coupon code, LUMAVS, and you will get a 25% discount on your first order. TerraNut Superfood Snacks, www.terranut.com. Don't forget to use coupon code, LUMAVS, at checkout. Fuel your life. You're listening to the Music Is Life podcast with your host, Lou Mabs, on the Rat Sound Review Network. Music Is Live podcast, this is your host, Lou Mabs. Check out everything you need to know about the show over at musicislivepodcast.com. And once again, Lady D is joining me, Miss Denise Escobar. Denise, how you doing? Doing good. How you doing? I'm doing great. I am doing great. We've had two killer episodes in a row. Definitely, you know, Def Leppard centric, which we're okay with that. We did our top 10 Absolutely. favorite songs. We had the lovely Miss Lorelai Shellis on the show. And I guess... How do you tap that? Uh, oh, who is this that we have as a guest? Why? It is Mrs. Helen Cullen. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, Helen. Thank you. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Ladies and gentlemen, our guest tonight is a successful photographer, theatrical costume designer, tailor, and stylist. She's also an award winner, having earned the prestigious Vivian Robinson Odelco Award for Excellence in Black Theater and the New York City Mayoral Citation for Artistic Service. She's a visionary, an artist, and a believer in the mantra, See Life. See, I read your bio. Uh, (laughs) She's also a devoted mother to her son, Jackson. And she is married to one of the most buff and healthiest sexagenarian British rock stars who every time he takes his shirt off to play arenas around the world, he puts dudes my age and younger to shame. (laughs) Which is a fact, and I'm willing to admit it. Of course, I'm talking about Def Leppard's Phil Collin, but most importantly, I'm talking about the love of his life for the past 10 years. And we'd like to welcome to the Music is Live podcast, Mrs. Alan Collin. Thank you. Pleasure to have you. It's 11. (laughs) It's 11? 11 years this year, yeah. I'm 13. Wait till you get there. <laughs> I'm 11 too, just this past Sunday. Yeah. Uh, every happy year anniversary. Now. Thank you. It was July 16th. Thank you. Well, happy oh. anniversary to both of you. Thank you. Very Wait till you get to 13. Man, no, I'm just kidding. Stop it. <laughs> you love her. I do. I do. <laughs> I do. When Helen and I were setting up uh, the uh, podcast itself, the, the uh, you know, uh, setting up everything, we were talking about, you know, our kids and uh, sharing pictures. And I got to admit, Jackson is adorable. He really is. Thank you. Thank so you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. You are a New York City girl. I'm a New York City guy. Let's get that yeah. straight. Raised <laughs> in Brooklyn by your grandmother. It's safe to say that everyone from the city has a story. Mm-hmm. What part of Brooklyn were you from originally, and what was it like for you growing up? And how did the parentage that you had from your grandmother and everything that you received from her? How would you say that shaped you into the person that you are today? Wow, um, I'm from Crown Heights, Brooklyn, St. Mark's and Kingston, between Kingston and Albany, on the Kingston side. That means a lot because actually you can't go straight through St. Mark's Avenue there because they what they did was they built a huge recreational park right in the middle of our block and so there are two horseshoes and so on the Kingston side there's a horseshoe to get in and out and then on the Albany Avenue side there's a horseshoe to get in and out and then right in the middle that's the park where the kids play so you can't drive through you can walk through but you can't drive through I'm sure that's Um, safer for the kids (laughs) 
Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You know, great block growing up. Um, it actually, that block was a prototype for a recreational, uh, residential block and, um, dignitaries back in the fifties and sixties, they would drive them all the way to Brooklyn to that particular block to see the example. And it was, um, created, it was, uh, for, it was, uh, African-American middle-class and, um, the neighborhood just beautiful. So, I mean, perfect block to play tag and, you know, hide and seek and all that stuff. I had a great childhood growing up. Um, my grandmother brought me home from the hospital. My mother had me when she was 17. She nursed me for a year and then went into the army. My grandmother kept me. Uh, she had actually brought me home from the hospital because back then, of course, having a baby and trying to make a living and by herself at 17 wasn't going to happen. My grandmother legally became my guardian. My mom, God bless her, she went on and she went into the army for quite a few years. So if I was born in 67, then my mom went into the army in 68, towards the end of 68. She was the, uh, I can't remember the base where she was. I want to say that it was stationed somewhere in North Carolina, but she was the first black woman there. And she stayed for several years. I come from a military family. Um, I am myself um, and my mom had three more children, my brothers, and then her sisters uh, and brothers who had kids. We're the first generation of our family that didn't go into the military. My grandmother, she basically just, she nurtured me. My grandmother was born in 1915. She left North Carolina during the Great Migration when African-Americans went north to start a better life. And she lived in, um, she went straight to Brooklyn. She was cleaning houses, went from cleaning houses to working in hospitals to where she became a nurse's aide at Lenox Hill Hospital, where I was born. She was a very spiritual woman. I was raised up in our church, uh, Cornerstone Baptist Church in Brooklyn, New York, still lifelong friends with all of my friends there. It's a spiritual place, not a religious place. There's a difference. We appreciate and, that difference. Yes, because <laughs> when you have that, then you can, you take the spirit with you wherever you go. It's not necessarily to, you don't have to be in a building. And, and that spirit just says, you know, really in layman's terms, just be a cool person. Just be cool. You know? Hey, freaking men. <laughs> you, know, you know, just be cool to people. Let people be cool with you, you know. <laughs> The people that's not cool with you, it's okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, we love you anyways, but move on. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's only room for the cool. You know, what my grandmother did was because she she basically, if you're born in 1915, that's not so far removed from the Reconstruction era. It actually still is in the South because things didn't change in the South. So she was still picking cotton when she was born. She picked cotton until she was 15 years old and she saved up enough money to come north. Basically, by the time I came along, you know, she, she wasn't able to read, had roughly, roughly a third grade education, but it wasn't really that. She still worked really hard to take care of me and did everything in her power to make sure that my education was great and complete at every level. When I was nine years old, I began to teach my grandmother how to read um, with my third grade school books. So I taught her how to read. And then um, she continued that education by going to night school after she came home. The determination that I saw in my grandmother, it really permeated me. She's a strong woman. She passed away in 2015, March 4th. She was the epitome of uh, love and independence. I used to call her the mayor because just everybody, you know, Mama Hattie is what everyone calls her. If you met her, you called her Mama Hattie, just automatic. She um, was always on the phone. Someone was always calling on her, checking on her. Um, she had a very independent spirit. She loved really hard. And that meant that um, she didn't accept failure or the ability not to do. She also did not get involved in drama. She did not entertain little people. Um, she just, there was no room for it because it took away time and energy. She, she used to have a saying, she used to always say, like, you know, if I told her about something crazy or whatever, and she'd just be like, just give it to a man who can handle it, you know, and that was just her way of saying, just put it in God's hands and let it go. She was just phenomenal in all of that, and all of that independent spirit, you know, it, it came into me, like, it was the type of thing, like, yeah, for school, you know, my grandmother had a, a basic saying in our house, which was, you do for me, I'll do for you. That began from the time that I could literally walk, so... I remember I was, you know, what, 
by we, we'd moved in Brooklyn to 936 St. Mark's where, where we were. I had my own room at three years old and I was responsible for picking up my toys, you know, fairly early. I remember by the time I was seven, I was old enough to reach the faucet. She said, you can wash dishes. She taught me how to wash dishes. I had chores every Saturday before I went outside. It was very structured, but it wasn't strict because it was understood that, you know, the two of us are living in this space and this is what it takes to make this happen. Um, although my grandmother couldn't read, it didn't stop her from making sure I had a library. She made sure to give me all of the things that she couldn't have at an early life. And I was surrounded by books very, very early. And I started drawing very, very early. And so she just smothered me with coloring books. And, you know, back in the day, you could get these coloring books that were like four feet tall and like six feet wide when you opened it, you know, and I remember just laying on the coloring book and she bought me the Crayola arts and crafts, you know, with the yeah. clay and the paint and the pencils and, the, you know, and oh, so- wow. Jesus, I'm missing my dad right now. He did all this stuff for me. She nurtured uh, what she saw. And um, I remember I would read the encyclopedias. You know, our neighbors gave me a gift set. And I would read them front to back from A to Z. It was so interesting. And then she got me, my grandmother bought me the Nancy Drew Hardy Boys hardcover mysteries. And I read those front to back. And then I just started devouring everything. So I would read and draw. That's all I would do. And she'd complain that I read too much. She'd always tell her friends, every time you see that cow, she's got her head in a darn book. And they'd be like, Daddy, you're complaining about Helen reading so much? Because I would sneak books into church. And so I'd open the hymnal and then I'd put like, you know, a Nancy Drew book inside the hymnal and read, or I would pick out people in church and sketch them and then pass it to my friends. And so we'd be giggling in church. And so we always got in trouble in church. We just <laughs> candy wrappers and talking, you know, but, um, yeah, but that was the fun of getting caught in oh, church. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. You know? And so, um, all of that, you know, but still I went to private school. She put me in private school from, um, she took extra shifts, put me in private school from first to eighth grade. And the school that I went to was excellent. It was called Prince of Peace Christian Day School. And it was a Lutheran school. We wore uniforms and the teachers were all from Trinidad and we got lashes in the hand. It was really, really strict. But by seventh grade, we were getting ready to go to one of the three science high schools in New York. And so it was Bronx Science, Brooklyn Tech, or Stuyvesant. Oh, my God. They're all still open. (laughs) Stuyvesant was number one at the time. Brooklyn Tech was number two. And Bronx Science was number three. We all took the test. And we said, we won't go to Stuyvesant, but we'll probably make it to Tech because the test was hard. So we we all went to Brooklyn Tech. Everybody from Prince of Peace tried out for their prospective schools. Some people went to Bishop Lachlan, which was, you know, totally cool. I went to Tech and then graduated from Tech. I studied industrial design in Brooklyn Tech. I wanted to be like a scientist engineer, but when I got into Tech, it was focused, uh, industrial design was focused a lot on drawing symmetrics. And I love the idea of the 3D drawing. And then that kind of piqued the interest more so because we had to take still life, you know, and so I did that. And then I went to Hampton University in Virginia, but I just went there for like two years, but it wasn't really my thing because it was business and my brain was going creatively. Yeah. And then um, I went to BMCC, you know, in Manhattan, Burr, Manhattan Community College for another two years. I could try and figure stuff out. So I just took little, you know, liberal arts courses, but most of them were art and painting. I took one acting class and a guy I met in there was a wonderful sketch artist. So after school, we would sketch together. And one day he said to me, he said, you know, because I used to dress like real, like, you know, I'd paint my friend's jackets and, you know, paint my clothes and paint daisies on my jeans and stuff. And he was like, you'd be great at SUNY Purchase. You should be a costume designer. And I was like, what's that? You know, I was in the New York club scene. I was, you know, I was like it girl kind of thing. You know, me and my friends were fairly popular. So I was like, okay. And he was like, yeah, you have to draw sketches. You know, you have to draw the idea and design it. And so I said, okay. And I went around, I got all the stuff I had made for people and put it in a big old red pleather suitcase. I got the interview and I went up there. They showed me around. I fell in love with it. They had the costume shop. And then, you know, they take you to the theater and all that stuff. And I got bit by the bug. I found out they look at 864 applicants. They choose 25 for the costume design program, each, you know, each program. And then I went home and um, a couple of months later, I got picked and I turned it down because my really? grandma. Really? 
Yeah, I got it was 92. I was going to go in. But my grandmother was having hip surgery and I wasn't going to leave her. So I said, thanks, but no thanks. Oh, so that was September 90. That was uh, no, no, no. It was the year 92. So then they called me back in March 93. And they said, look, if you want to still come here, we're going to leave this open and you can come in September. Then the secretary called me. Her name was Barbara Ombres. She called back and said, look, they never do this. So, yeah, that's not an opportunity been- that's bestowed upon anybody, really. That's amazing. You must have made quite an impression. I, you know what it, I, I, I tell you what, it's amazing what you can do when you respect something, but you don't know too much about it. Now, I didn't know what purchase was. I was going based on my friend, Milwan Tosta, who, you know, was like, Hey, you'd be great at this. And then I got up there and was like, wow, this is amazing. I didn't even think about me getting in. I just was like, I'm going to show what I have because this is all I have. So I've never been a person to impress upon people to be like, Hey, here I come. Like, that's not my thing. I'm like, if I'm you, if you dig it, then you dig it. If you don't, it's okay. You know? So I kind of went up there based on, I was the only one who didn't have a black portfolio dressed in black with my hair and a ponytail. And, you know, I think I wore, I was going to the club. So I probably had on some leggings and a little top with a motorcycle jacket, you know, and like a lace glove and a baseball cap, you know, and then like, um, yeah, I just popped open my suitcase I took out sketches, art, you know, I had paintings that I'd done, you know, my still lifes. And it was basically me showing this is what I do. This is what I can do. You know, I brought sketches that Milwan and I had done sitting in a window in BMCC and blessed purchase. They recognize ability. Mm-hmm. You don't have to come in a hundred percent fully fleshed out. All they want to see is that you're already on the road for them to hone something. Because mm-hmm. if they can train that, that's their job, to train it and discipline it and put it in the box that makes it their perfect. So if they right. see that, then that's what's the deal. So for me, I already understood that type of thing. So I was just like, if they like it, they like it. So when they call back, I was you know, definitely honored. But I was at the same time, I was like, that's cool. I'm not leaving my grandmother. So thanks. Right. I, I was That's like, right. I'll figure it out. If I'm an artist, I'm going to be an artist, you know? Right. So I went and um, she was fine. And, and September, um, more like August 93, I went in there. I had transferred credits because it's a four-year program. So on top of getting in there, I transferred some credits, but not really a whole bunch. But I made a decision to do the program in three years because they said it was a four-year program. Wow. So I did. And I got out in 96. I went in with 25 students, including myself. And I graduated with, I think, 15. Purchase was hard. I had some times in there, like I was going through a battle with one of my teachers. She wasn't really fond of me. I don't know why. It was weird. You know, like one statement she made, we were doing much ado about nothing. And she looks at me because our classes were small, like six, seven people. And she goes, okay, we're going to, I need you guys to look at much ado about nothing. And I was like, oh, great. And in my head, I was like, oh, I love that, you know. And she goes and says, Helen, not the version with Denzel Washington. Stupid! You're so stupid! I was like, she talking to... Really? But you know what? Here's the thing. You can't control people, so you can't worry about that. All I said to her was, and this was from the bottom of my heart, which I probably made her mad even more. I said, to be honest with you, I didn't even know when Denzel Washington did a version. I was going to watch the PBS version. I was like, do you need me to watch Denzel? (laughs) I didn't know he did it. You know what I'm saying? I was like, what the hell does that mean? I think that's a very respectable response. You know, but I don't really care about stuff like that because as soon as people show that type of attitude, you just look at them and you'd be like, I'm going to pray for you because you got issues. So I could have been someone else. You still would have did that. I'm going to be me, but you're going to be you tomorrow. You know what I mean? So then you keep it. I love it. You keep it moving. Purchase came and I I graduated immediately. I joined a union straight away, IATSE. And I joined the Costume Designers Union and started working on Broadway, New York film right away. And because there was a hole in the Black theater community for Black costume designers, I got scooped up. And so I was working always three or four shows at one time in New York, New Jersey, Philly, you name it. And then my mentor ended up being Harry Sandler, who was um, tour manager for the Eagles. 
So he got me even more gigs, like just amazing stuff. And because of him, 2008, 2009, I ended up taking out Dancing with the Stars on tour um, as the wardrobe supervisor. And then he'd get me those type of gigs. So like his son, Jesse, would call and Jesse would be like, hey, Helen. And I'd go, yes. You know, (laughs) (laughs) look, I have a half naked baby here. So I was just. Oh, is that Jackson? Hi, Hello. Hi. <laughs> oh, God, I How you doing? Hey, fine. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> Go with that. I have okay. to ask: Does he pick up on his dad's Cockney accent? He has. He 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 actually has some words. Yeah, he's um definitely you know, and Phil's always like, "That's right," you know. But yeah, he says Walter, and um, <laughs> it, it, it it comes in the other day. He said grass. And he said he wanted to, he wanted to water the plants. And I said, water the plants? Don't you want to water the plants? And, you know, he was like, water the plants. And I was like, oh my okay. goodness. We have this running joke because there's a scene in um, The Omen. And it's the only time Damien talks, the little boy. And it's when his father, Gregory Peck, has mm-hmm. him on the altar. He's about to, you know, and um, no, Damien goes, daddy, no. No, daddy, no. <laughs> I never so, noticed that. I've yeah, only seen the, the only film once. Talks, but... The only time he talks, and so uh, I, I say to Phil sometimes, I go, "Dad, you know," and so he'll just crack up. You know, but, well, you might get a kick part. out of this. My my daughter's a huge Peppa Pig fan, so she I, goes to my wife, uh, "Mommy, mommy, 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 mommy." I'm like, no. I try and infuse a little Brooklyn in there, but you know, it depends. It, it depend. Are you trying to show? Okay. He's also got, you know, some of his dad's rock star spirit. So, Aww. oh my goodness. He's going to take after his old man. Yeah. <laughs> Showing you the shades, you know, you look cool, Jackson. Those the Bono shades. <laughs> but yeah. So, um, I ended up coming out and working really heavily in um, theater, just all around. And um, one of the first women that I worked with was Judy Deering. I did an internship. There's a there's a show by Ntozake Shange called it, uh, For Color Girls Who Consider Suicide When the Rainbow Is Enough. It's quite famous. And um, she was doing the 20th anniversary showing of it. And I had to make, I had to do, before coming out of school, it kept getting on my case because I was spending my summers at summer camp because I wasn't taking it serious to do an internship in theater. I was like, okay, whatever. They were like, if you don't do this, you won't graduate. So my godmother hooked me up with um, Judy Deering, who was the original Broadway uh, costume designer for the show, and said, you can get with Judy to redoing the 20th anniversary back on Broadway. You can uh, graduate and use that as an internship. So I got in. I made. I wanted to go to summer camp. So I got with Judy, made the dresses in two weeks. <laughs> for the show (laughs) because I was uh, my internship was to make the dresses because I'm a I'm a costume construction person as well so um I (laughs) here we go who's taking him dada (laughs) love your music (laughs) he said thank you oh cheers sir yeah I ended up um doing the dresses going to camp and everything in one fell swoop and then the next year I was able to graduate because this is weird. I needed eight more credits because you know I had done that thing where I said I'm going to do it in three years, and I got called to my uh, counselor's office, and they were like, well, "You're going to have to come back in September." I said, "Nope, I'm not coming back. That's not. I'm not doing that." I you said I could, I was following everything. It was going to work, and then I said, "Wait a minute." The show had came out that I had made the dresses for the New York Times front page of Arts and Leisure section took a photo and reviewed the show. The photo that they took and put on the front page were all eight women in the dresses I made. I went, I got the clip, I went back to the office and I said, don't you train us to do this? I said, those are my dresses. I'm in the New York Times. And that is amazing. Said, you know, absolutely. And they gave me eight life credits and I graduated. Awesome. Oh, my credits, right. But I, and I started working just... It was crazy right away. And so that all of that, my grandmother was here for all of that. You know, it still was her spirit. It's that independent spirit. It's the press forward spirit. It's the humility spirit. It's the stay focused spirit. But in the midst of that, don't get me wrong, I had a ball. SUNY Purchase was awesome. Partied. You know, my thing is you can party like a rock star. 
as long as you wake up and go to class. You yeah. know, you can do whatever you want to do as long as you do what you're supposed to do. And my um, wife mentioned it to me that when she's a graduate of SUNY Purchase 2003, and she yeah. told me, oh, yeah, they partied. But when it came time to perfect your craft, you did it. So. Oh, yeah. The conservatory of acting, uh, dance, uh, production design, and uh, music, the hardest, hardest partiers on campus. No one out <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> entertainment industry at SUNY Purchase, but also the hardest working. You know, I, I spent eight hours a day in the costume shop, and that's not even class. That started at three o'clock. I got out of there at 10, 11 o'clock and then still had to do all my homework and then go to regular classes from like eight until 2.45. Anything that I did, partying and all that stuff would even happen 11 to two. And I still did everything I needed to do because there was no room for failure. There's just not, and they kick you out. So you can't go to class once and be like, I didn't do it. That doesn't happen. The kid makes an appearance and stays in the picture. Okay. That's okay. We're keeping this episode G-rated. Yeah. No yeah, cussing yeah, yeah, for yeah, me, yeah. so it's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no cussing, no cussing. It's all right. So um, I did I did everything, came out, and um, just began meeting. Like I said, my mentor was just amazing. And he was the one who ultimately steered me towards Live Nation and said, you know, I've got this kid. Because he always gave me, like, really great wardrobe jobs, but then steered me towards... Um, VIP, it was I Love All Access at the time. And uh, it's like this thing, and you work with artists, and you go out on the road with them. And, and I was like, you just make the party and get the tickets and make a gift card? That's it. I was like, oh, that's a piece of cake. So um, I went out with Kanye West first. That's what they were grooming me for. But to train for it, I had to go to Reading, Pennsylvania. And I trained behind Def Leppard's uh, VIP person. And that's how I met Philip. Uh, and that was through Live Nation, correct? Yep, I was working for Live Nation. And, th- and so all of that led to that. And so it's funny when you look at life's twists and turns. So my friend Milwan Tosta from BMCC pointed me in the direction of what eventually would be my life here. And it's, so f- it's, it's, just, it's just wild because then Jesse, you know, um, and his dad, um, Jesse Sandler, who... Um, Jesse is production manager for Bon Jovi now. Amazing. And his dad, Harry, passed away a few years ago. Um, Wonderful, wonderful people. You know, Jesse is my fan. But um, Jesse had gotten me the job. Music to My Ears was a benefit concert for for, um, Timothy White, who used to be the editor-in-chief of Billboard magazine in 2001. He passed away. And they did a benefit concert for him which was at the Boston Fleet Center. I think it's called something now. And they did one night at Madison Square Garden. And I Jesse think it's had, the TD Bank Arena now. Something like that in Boston. Okay. And, uh, they, I got hired, Jesse hired me as the wardrobe supervisor for the tour, for the shows. And it had like just a plethora of celebrities who were, you know, everyone from Sting to Kevin Bacon. Remember he had the Bacon Brothers? So just <laughs> everybody was on it. And he um, and Steve Jordan was the music director, who's now the drummer for the Stones. Oh, phenomenal drummer. I love this work with the John Mayer trio. Oh, yes. Yes. So it was just star studded. And I was John Mellencamp was on it. And that's how I met John Mellencamp and became like Ben mother for uh, his tour for like two years. Yeah, it was like on and off. And I was out with John. But it, it just everything just rolled you know, when you're in the right place. And so by the time I got to working with Live Nation, it was a piece of cake. And then I did that. And then the next year, that was 2008. And then Def Leppard needed a uh, VIP hostess. And then I became their VIP hostess. But I had met Phil the year before. Didn't even, I thought he was a crew guy, you know. And, um, but he's, you know, he was so kind. Everyone on the Def Leppard crew, most crews, I've been blessed. I've worked with some amazing people. You know, crew people are the best ever. They're hardworking great fun and just the perfectionist in the craft. It's, I think the reason why I flourish so much on the road is because, because I'm a theater girl. I love the theater. You know, um, it's the same mentality. You get, you got one chance. It's live. Yeah. You know, there's no do over, you know, I was living in New York. I moved from Brooklyn in 2003 and went down to Baltimore and I was working um, and I joined a union down there. So I was working in all the theaters down there and um, Virginia. And I became a dresser at Kennedy Center as well. And it's the same, same mentality of everyone. Just a wonderful 
vibe just permeates. And it's, it's just something that just kept flowing all the way through to me working with um, Def Leppard. And then ultimately, you know, Phil and I got married and I did a couple of more years, but then, you know, it's like, okay, well, I guess I'll just stop and be a wife. And I did that part just where you just kind of flatline a little bit and get your breath. And I picked up the camera more because the whole time I had been working from the beginning, I was shooting because I shoot my own continuity for film. Uh, when I was at the Billy Holiday Theater, I shot the stills that would go to the press and the media. So I was always shooting. But then when I got with Phil, it began to go up a notch. And I began to use the experience and the opportunities of travel and seeing these amazing shows to incorporate my creativity because it, it's always art. I, I can't help but create. It always comes out. I can't sit still and like not do anything. I'm going to write. I'm going to draw. I'm going to take a picture. I'm going to do something. If you walk in a room and it's just duct tape, I'm going to duct tape a design on the wall. You know what I mean? You said it before. You said it perfectly and beautifully. You said an artist just does. That's what they do. Yeah. And so... And that's where we are. And then I had Jackson. I chilled for a little bit and, um, you know, just getting my bearings on things and scheduling and all of that. But now, you know, I'm back in the fold. And right now I'm currently working on a lyric video for a death metal band, band which is awesome. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. A, a, a what? <laughs> I was going to say, Lou, you're going to lose your mind. Okay. Now I you're know, talking I'm my language. Because I do... I, I do everything. Like you could come to me and it doesn't matter because I don't discriminate because it's still creative. So I'm working on a lyric video for a death metal band. What's the name of the band or you can't disclose that? <laughs> no, I probably would ask them first, but I'll wait. I'll tell you later. And then you can say, hey, the video's out. And this is what I That's fine. I'll put it in the... Uh... Yeah. Subtitles. <laughs> yeah, 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 post. <laughs> That's fine. We'll fix it in post. That's what we do. We fix everything in post. You know. I love post. Yeah. And yeah. General Mills. That was a horrible joke. I'm sorry. Never mind. Boo! I get it. Uh, Thank you. I get it. I get it. Quaker's not. Oh, <laughs> D, stop shaming me. <laughs> but yeah. The Photography, which is wonderful, has now lent itself to motion graphics, animation, and just building. Like Phil said to me today, he said, I think this is what you're supposed to do because I'm showing him the video as I'm making it. And he's like, whoa, that's awesome. It's just growing. And so the years pass and you look in hindsight and you get to see your craft grow. And that's the fun part because you go, okay, I'm learning stuff. <laughs> right, right. It's only in hindsight do you feel that way. What are your influences when it comes to photography? Is it just something that you kind of, you know, you started looking around and saying, and then just picturing it and just being creative that way? Or were there certain photographs that you looked at that you wanted to kind of try out? And that's kind of how you got into no, it. You know what, to, to be honest with you, I'm a movie buff. Love great movies. It, every genre, any genre. I'm a horror movie down a rabbit hole type of girl sweet like, love horror um and that's because you know i've worked on stuff so i know that off camera like there's a dude sweating in black with a pump trying to make as much blood come through this t-shirt as possible so you get it you know what i mean so i did my first exhibit right and it was kind of stuff that i had already mixed in with stuff i needed to shoot but i gave myself a concept and the concept for the first one was um gratitude right and that was after i had jackson so that meant to me, like, if you look at the world through, like, new eyes, you know, what, what are you grateful for? Or what, what is beautiful about the world to be grateful for? Because it doesn't always have to be about you, you know? Right. And so I create concepts. I'm a concept person. I think that concepts are like maps to a captain on sea. They guide everything. And so if you can give yourself a concept, then you can write a story. And every story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. What part of the story do you want to share or do you want to share the whole thing? And so I don't use photography more so as a showy thing. I use it more so to show you what I see or how I feel about something. So that guides the creation of the photograph. And if I see something that I want to share through my eyes the way I see it. So that's the artistry because I take a photo. So anyone can take that photo, 
But then it's how do I, what angle do I take the photo? Because, you know, when I'm looking at it, I can look at something a hundred different ways. I have a thing in the pit of my stomach that always goes, and I go, that's it. And I act on that. So if I see a shot and I'll go, that's the shot. When I'm shooting a show, I don't shoot tons of pictures because if I shoot like the guys, when I was shooting them, I literally could go click. That's the shot because I got to feel that's the shot because it's always like, if you think that what you see is great, don't you want to share that with someone else? And if you take a million great things, then you're going to confuse your, you know, the person you're talking to. When you say, oh, I want to tell you a story. You don't tell them 18 stories. You tell them one. No, you're right. Context is everything. That's pretty much it. So to answer your question, yeah, that's, that's what guides the photo itself. Now, if I do a series of something, like it's, it's just concept. Like, so I'm doing this lyric video. It's concept. Create a story. So you have to pull something out of thin air. So you go, what if? That's the greatest question in the world. Because it gives you all the creative freedom that you need. What if? Because no one can come and interfere in that because it's your what if. Now, if you create this story around that what if, then you have a single solitary story to tell that no one can influence because it's yours. All you have to do is tell it really well. And then they can't even refute your what if. They can't go, that can't happen. Be like, wow, that was awesome. What if? And you go, that's all I wanted you to say. You know? So that's kind of how I operate. Concept, concept, you know, as for visuals, because I love movies and all that stuff so much, I know they say if you do something, create a mood board and do all this, I already have it in my head. So I already go, I know what I want this to look like because I've got classic scenes already. Like, I, I don't know if you guys remember. So we always talk about coma and we always talk about Omen or the Exorcist or whatever, you know, stuff like that. You, you, you see these classic scenes. So coma, which came out around the same time as Jaws which is 76 or 77. And it was about these people going to coma, comas and, and dying. It was like a psychotic thriller or whatever they call them. The book cover was classic. It's just a person laying, you know, just a horizontal kind of like flat line jaws. You know, it's the shark coming out of the water. Exorcist. It's the priest looking up at the window. Oh, you what know? that? Yeah. You know, you know what I mean? Take is powerful, so, yeah. So you get these powerful images in your head. So when you begin to uh, really have a library of powerful images, you've already got this thing, you know, to pull from. You already go, I know what it, I want it to look like. If you say the word zombie, you've got choices. But if you've got the library, you can say George A. Romero, the black and white film noir. Now you're you, talking my language. You know, <laughs> or... You can say World War Z, where you had these, you know, rabid, fast-paced, you know, almost superhuman type, you know, zombies. So you've got these different dynamics. It's just what story do you want to tell that makes it yours, you know? So that's kind of where I go. It's a library here already. And I just pull from that to create the photo or video or you know what I mean yeah yeah I feel like you approach everything like that yeah I do do. yeah I do yeah I I have to ask one thing as a fellow horror buff are you at all (laughs) interested or do you like the Italian horror film directors like Dario Argento or Lucio Fulci absolutely absolutely (laughs) you you said that I I watched Suspiria like I love Suspiria yeah yeah. and you know they redid it the redo was okay but it's I agree they did the classic because you see them going places where you go, ooh, this is going to freak people out. The redo is kind of like they're redoing it. But it's nice to see when they're doing something for the first time to see. And, and you don't look for perfection in, in the in the classics. You know, it's kind of like watching The Mummy, you know, with Boris Karloff or, you know, or Dracula with Bela Lugosi. And you, you watch it and you it's it's about just um, them entering this new space. And then you just have to free your mind and go back there with them. A while ago, I remember Phil and I, we were like, let's watch The Fall of Usher with Vincent Price. Oh, the old Hammer Horror films. Very cool. Yes, yes. Or The Pit and the Pendulum. You know, I remember watching The Pit and the Pendulum when I was little. Scared the heck out of me. But you know what scene stays with me? The first cut that the pendulum made. 
when that pendulum comes down and makes that first cut, something in your mind goes, oh, this is really going to happen. And that's the most powerful moment. So pulling from those things. But yeah, so we get there. But it's all that film noir, that black and white, that, that, that beautiful cinematic moment. You know, the Italian films are great. The French films are crazy. You know, French horror. There's, they are. You Did you see Martyrs? <laughs> no, I am not. The only French film I've seen is Amelie, and that's a romantic comedy. You have to put the kids to bed and be like, I can't even believe. I have to drink some water. This is crazy. Because it's one. Of, it's the French horror films make you go, How did they do that? How did they do that? That's the only genre uh, or you know cultural genre of films I look at, and I go, How did they do that? Mm-hmm. Now I did watch. You say Italian horror, so he was an Italian director. And he did the green, the green inferno. I think you're talking about Ruggiero Deodato, who directed Cannibal yeah. Holocaust. Yeah, so Cannibal Holocaust, I, I watched. I I, uh, I I can't watch oh, that film. You go, how did they do that? <laughs> no, I did a review of that film for my show, and I said it's hard for me to ever watch that film again because of the D. There's actual animal killings in this film, and yeah. he got, uh, it's so, so hard to watch. He got, he got arrested. I think he got arrested. And, you know, yeah, I don't know yeah. if I'd want to. Oh, oh, so the great story was the Italian government brought him in because of attempted murder because they thought it was a snuff film. And what happened was he made the actors sign a waiver that they couldn't act for a year. They couldn't make a public appearance for a year. And he asked them to break the rule because he's like, they're going to put me away if you guys don't come here and bail me out. <laughs> and they said, "Well, what about what about the uh, native girl who was uh, looked like she had the right. um, she was stuck to the pole? Apparently, right, they couldn't find her. Yeah, apparently they brought her in and they yes. re they re redid what they did. All they did was they took like a pole, they put a bicycle seat on it, and that's right. balsa wood she's got out of yes. her mouth. Yes, yeah, like that yes. visual yes. itself is crazy. Yes. It was it was Absolutely. cool, but yeah. still can't watch that movie." <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a little. Nice. It's a little nice. Sounds horrible. <laughs> it sounds horrible. Oh, horror, which is, which is what they were going for. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't recommend it unless you find Bambi to be uh, something you'd show your kids. <laughs> but yeah, so that, that that's the artistry, pretty much. It just kind of flows, you know. I do have to ask: when you say that you were part of the club scene in the '80s, correct me if I'm wrong, but am I thinking Limelight and Pyramid Club and Michael Alec and James St. James and the Club Kids? Oh, dude, you better work. Um, I I was I, so limelight. I went to probably twice. I was a part of a deeper scene in New York. Um, it was the the deep house uh, scene, and so there was a club called the Garage, and it used to be on Barrack and King, and Larry Levan was the DJ there. He was the god, and um, he basically it was a um warehouse. You know, and you had you needed a membership to get in, but if you paired up with someone who had a membership, they could bring a guest. And the first time I went, it was uh, you know a couple of me and my Brooklyn Tech friends, and we were like, oh, you know, we'll go hang out. And I remember I had on a long pink sweater dress from Benetton, totally inappropriate because it was pink, and it's New York nightclub scene. You don't wear pink; you wear black. You know, and um, yep. We got in, and I remember as I walked through, because I'm a Michael Jackson head, you know, my walls were covered, and I walked into the club, and the first thing I heard going down this long corridor was Larry LeVan remixing Beat It. And that's when I was like, oh, this is home. And then that was my introduction to the New York club scene. And then, so it was house music. And so I went to the limelight. Um, We went to... um, the tunnel, which was major, but we were at Nell's. There was a club called um, the Octagon. We were there. Uh, the Shelter. That and so these clubs opened at midnight. They closed at about eight in the morning, Sunday morning, and then everyone would go to the pink teacup and have cheese grits and tea. That's what we did. That club scene was really, really heavy. For me, it was all about the dance. I was just addicted to the music. It was, when you look back on it, celebrities were there too. Everyone was there. So we were there at this club. Madonna came in. But it wasn't a big deal because it's New York. And, you know, when you're in the right place, people are always converging because they can come in. No one bothers them. 
and they can chill. So she came in with Matt Dillon. And I remember that night, the extravaganzas were performing and they were a house, um, <clears throat> like a Vogue house. And, um, you know, the show Pose, it comes on television. And so that's, you know, taken, that's that New York, that's New York. You know, I'm, that's I'm not familiar with the show, but I remember the film Paris is Burning. Absolutely. So it was that. So they were, um, the extravaganzas were a house. They were top and they were performing like on the stage. And I remember she came in and had a good time or whatever, I guess, because we were on the dance floor. Everybody's having a good time. But about three or four months later, because Junior Vasquez was the DJ for that club. And remember, Junior Vasquez produced, uh, began producing Madonna's music. But Vogue came out about four months later and it was a hit. And that the extravaganzas are who's in the video. They performed um, with her and she took them with her. So the Madonna tours and everyone's getting all busy or whatever. That's the extravaganzas. But that was the scene we were in. It was pretty awesome. Willie Ninja, correct? Willie! You... I can't. Yes. <laughs> Willie Ninja. Yes, Willie Ninja. I knew Willie. Oh, he passed away not too long ago. I know. God rest his soul. That was my scene. Like we go to Nell's and like I passed by Prince. I remember I was going down the stairs and Prince was coming up and I had on my brand new orange turtleneck from the Gap. I was like, it's Prince. And he was like, like that orange. And I was like, Prince? Oh my yeah. goodness. Oh, Eddie Murphy there. Tupac was there. I mean, because it was it was New York. It's, it's the it's the nightlife scene. And it's wonderful because New York party nights were like Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Sunday night. Those were the nights. Friday and Saturday were for tourists. Monday night, everyone took off. So Friday wow. and Saturday were for people from Jersey. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Come Long on, Island. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Long Island. The dirty yeah. jurors. You know, going you know, but the um the 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 real nights were Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Sunday. Wow. Yeah. And I worked at Kilimanjaro. I don't know if you knew that club uh over on um what was it? Uh 23rd between 10th and 11th. And um it was called Club Kilimanjaro. It used to be called Club Tracks, and then it turned to Kilimanjaro. But I worked co check there for like three years. <laughs> I I admit when it came to uh, New York City clubs, I mean, like I pretty much kind of like stuck with uh, like I was there at the end of Lemoore's in Brooklyn when mm -hmm. that was closing. Um, mm -hmm. CB's, yeah, I always went to go see shows there at CBGB's. I I yeah, played the Continental, you know, oh. uh, right on St. Mark's Place. So like yeah. that that for me was like my CBGB's. I'm like, oh, probably never been okay. big enough to play CB's, but I'm happy to play the Continental. And I played the yeah. Pyramid Club. And, and the funny oh. thing is that they were still doing like, you know, uh, club nights at the Pyramid mm -hmm. Club. So mm -hmm. as I'm lugging my equipment out, because it was it was a matinee hardcore show one time that I played there. And, yeah. you know, we're lugging our equipment out. All of a sudden we see dudes walking in with like angel wings and underwear. And we're like, <laughs> oh, that's what they are after hours. OK. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But again, it's is New York City. So like, yeah. you know, you kind of accepted yeah. it is what it is absolutely. you know absolutely yeah fantastic yeah there was a club um it was the cheetah club and it was so funny i was working on a film in 1997 it was called a woman like that it was just it was david talbert who currently has jingle jangle on netflix which is this wonderful christmas movie for the kids you should watch it it's great but um i probably will <laughs> he, was, he was directing this film and um morris day was one of the characters in the film morris day all the time i love the time and it, it was great because so i was a wardrobe supervisor and i remember you know they they called me in the office and they were like helen Morris wants to go out partying. And I was like, so? And they were like, well, we know you're in the club scene. So, and I was like, you want me to take Morris out? I said, okay. So um, Lisa, who was like the assistant, you know, to the, one of the producers and then like her girlfriend and um, she, her girlfriend had the car. So, and it was like a yellow Volkswagen Beetle. And I was like, okay. You know, they, she was like, okay, I'll pick you up. So they picked me up my house. I go and I'm like, okay, we got to get Morris. There used to be this, um, hotel it's gone because of 9-11 in new york and it had a red carpet that went it was called the millennium and it had a red carpet that went straight to the curb and morris was staying at the millennium and um we went and picked him up and i remember lisa's girlfriend parked the yellow vw bug right at the edge of the red carpet so you got this little volkswagen beetle 
little teeny garden. It's this wide, four foot wide red carpet that goes from the hotel door all the way to the edge of the curb. And then the little car is just sitting there like, hello. So I went inside the hotel and got Morris. And I remember he came downstairs. He had on a white cashmere coat and he had like an off-white, you know, double-breasted suit, the tie, he had the Stacey Adams on and we had a ball on set, you know, so he was like, okay, Helen, you know, and he got to the door and saw that BW sitting there. <laughs> he was like, oh, hell no, I'm not getting that <laughs> And I looked at him and was like, you going to walk or you going to stay in the hotel tonight. So it's up to you. He was cursing me out, but with love. He was like, I can't believe it. So me and Morris are sitting in the back because, you know, they like no bigger than a minute. And when he's sitting in there, he got his coat wrapped around him. And he's just like, I can't believe you got me in his car. <laughs> we get to the theater club and Willie Ninja was working the door. And um, Barbara Tucker was it was her night it was a wednesday night and then um i you know we get to the club and morris was like go around the block i don't need nobody seeing me get out the school oh dear lord <laughs> <laughs> so we parked down the street and you know come walking up and i see willie he's like hey girl how you doing i said i'm fine i was like i got more stay from the time with me and he said you got whoop helen's out of here she got more stay from the time you know and so then they just like make a path and we go inside and what a wonderful night. And on top of it all, George Benson was performing. Who knew? Oh my God. What a genius guitar player he was. Absolutely. And I look great because of course I take him to a club with George Benson. <laughs> I had no idea. And so we went in and we just had a ball, you know, it was so great. And I remember just, um, you know, cause we had about, about three weeks maybe left on the film and every day was just, wonderful and we stayed in touch for about maybe like a year or so or two years and then um I ended up moving and then you know he's torn and stuff and so we lost touch but I've always been like I need to get in touch with Morris you know but he's just wonderful guy but that was so funny just the VW you know the the the, the Volkswagen at the end of the red carpet it was bright taxi cab yellow and he was like, I'm not getting in this. <laughs> Morris Day, if you're watching this, please don't ask me to take this episode down. I'm leaving it up. <laughs> you that's know, a and great all, story. And all those cars smell like juicy fruit gum. <laughs> <laughs> they all smell like juicy fruit. <laughs> it was a moment. You had to be there. <laughs> but yeah, now I've had some wonderful times in this career and it's, in this life. I'm very grateful. Thank you for listening to the Music Aside podcast brought to you by Anchor.fm and Ratsaw Review. Check out the other shows on Ratsaw Review, including Beyond Bushido, Old Man Metals Musings, The Right Opinion, The Vieira Vault, The Timo Toki Podcast, The BS Sessions with Mark and Jerry, Just the Cheese Please, and The Friday Night Party with the great Harry Barnett and Evie. Graphics by Rocky Baia. For commissions, find them on Twitter at R-O-C-K-Y-B-A-I-A. Intro and outro music for the show is Lose Control by The Rebel Media, written by Jacqueline Guitard, Ernest Leyuk, and Lou Mavs. If you'd like to donate to the channel, please donate to our PayPal at musicislivepodcast at gmail.com. If you're in a band and you want us to review your music, then contact us at Mavs at musicislivepodcast.com. Special thanks to Wayne Noon and Greg Noggle. With much love and gratitude to Aaron, Anna, and Aloysius. For more information, check out www.musicislivepodcast.com. And don't forget to check out www.ratsireview.com. Remember, all art is valid. Thanks for listening. Cheers. I'm running from Jackson. <laughs> That's what I was doing. I was actually like running from Jackson. So. Jackson, you it's didn't okay. see mommy. You, know. you did not see mommy, Jackson. <laughs> he gonna, he going to be up here. It's okay. It's nothing I can do about it. I'm going to sit right here. Perfect. I love it. It's okay. Perfect. Oh, yeah. Awesome. I got my dogs on my feet. If they hear anything, you're going to hear barking. So that's all good. This Part of life, right? Oh, yeah. sh oh Seamus and Quinn. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.